Now, Father, as we look into your word, you reveal to us some precious truths that encourage our hearts uh, through Paul the Apostle's ordeal, being persecuted, that you strengthen him and you help him through the highs and lows, Lord. There's so much to learn. Speak to us. God, prepare us. We're in the same kind of world, called to do the same kind of thing, to shine the light in a world that prefers darkness. And so we pray that these truths this morning would encourage our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Take a seat. I think it's true that most people don't really like to repeat themselves. And usually it's not easy to hide our annoyance when we have to do so. Like the Roman soldier here in Acts chapter 22, uh, he keeps having to repeat the same old question and he's not very happy about it. You'll recall last time some chaos has broken out there in the temple. Uh, there uh, it's jam-packed. There in Jerusalem, an angry mob surrounds the Apostle Paul. Uh, they don't like him. They don't like what he preaches. They start beating him and trying to kill him. And you recall the Roman commander intervenes with a simple question. You know, who is this man and what has he done? And the crowd's no help. <laughs> One side is shouting one thing and others are shouting something else. And Paul, Paul himself incarcerated there in their grip offers to clear it up he wants to address the crowd they let him and the crowd quiets down amazingly and listens attentively all until he says something that they didn't appreciate it was like stepping on a landmine and the crowd exploded and pandemonium again and now they're back to square one with a crowd trying to kill Paul. So the commander is still perplexed, still wants to know, and he's repeating himself, but not getting the answer. So he says, I'm going to flog it out of him. And so they stretch him forth. You remember what happened. He's informed. It turns out he's not going to get his answers that he's looking for because it's illegal to flog a Roman citizen, and Paul is one. And so he dismisses the crowds. He unties Paul, takes him into the barracks, and that's where we left off last time. Now we're picking back up. Paul has gotten out of a flogging, but he's not out of custody, nor is he out of harm's way, as we're about to see for the next uh, chapters here. Um, there's going to be a formal inquiry because the Roman commander is hoping to finally get his questions answered. Uh, so he calls a hearing, and uh, that is going to lead to all kinds of troubles uh, that really don't resolve themselves until the end of the book of Acts. And so for the next six or seven chapters, Paul is embroiled in this incarceration of sorts, first in Caesarea, and then it's he goes to Rome, where he is still in jail for two additional years, where then church historians say he will then be released. Um, so, uh, okay, it's the morning after the riot. The commander uh, is still scratching his head. He wants some answers. I mean, he's got some paperwork there, right? He's got to you know, write something down. He wants to know what crime has he committed Verse 30 of chapter 22, the next day after they tried to kill him twice and the mob 
the earlier day, since the commander still wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, to assemble there. They're all right there in the temple courts. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked now in chapter 23, verse 1. Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin. He fixes his eyes and very strong in the Greek. Uh, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the Bible, the scriptures, the commandments. Yet you yourself violate the scripture by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you? You insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, and now he quotes the law of Moses against his own actions. Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. We're going to pause there. And we hope to get through at least the chapter to see where this story leads. There's a lot to learn through it. There's always God is working in Paul's life. And so maybe the third time is the charm here. So the commander hopes to get uh, some uh, light on the subject. What's going on here? Uh, so we begin, no takers with the slap. All right. Now, uh, the commander, who I've been calling Tony because he's Italian, right? So Tony, the commander, he, it's, an, it's a reasonable attempt to get some answers. There you see the motive in verse 50. He calls for the Jewish high council because he wants to know, and he figures, and he figures correctly. This is some kind of religious squabble. It's an in internal conflict between them in the Jewish community. So why not have the Jewish high court assemble and figure out what's going on? And so that's pretty smart. Now, this council, called the Sanhedrin, it means the gathering place. Uh, it's got 70 elders. They're made up mostly of Pharisees and Sadducees who do not get along. They believe different things. More about that in a second. Uh, but they are the same council before whom Jesus, our Lord, appeared some 30 years earlier. Now, if those men at the time of Jesus' trial uh, were 30 or 40 years old, they would still be alive and present in that semicircle that now surrounds Paul. That's how they would meet. They would surround the accused, and then the accused spoke from within that semicircle. And so, <clears throat> now, uh, Tony, the commander, uh, he wants to get to the bottom of it, right? And, and, and he's hoping that this hearing is going to throw some light on the situation, but it won't. <laughs> Spoiler alert, he's not going to get any help uh, from the Sanhedrin because it's going to explode again. Um, and so we have to break it to the commander. We can tell him. So I, I've got it down here. Listen, Tony, I'll tell you what's going on because nobody in the story is going to tell you. So let me tell you, he's guilty of violating penal code 777. Uh, and, and this is what he's done. The man you got in custody, he loves God. 
and he loves God's word, and he doesn't want anybody to perish or miss out on heaven. And so the Lord appeared to him and changed his life, and now he lives his life to preach the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever simply believes in him doesn't have to perish, but have everlasting life. That all of us need a savior because we're sinners, Tony, and um, we can't save ourselves and there's only one way to be saved and it's through Jesus and Jesus alone and faith in him. So we need to repent as sinners and trust in Jesus. Now, Tony, the world gets mad at that. Most people find that um, uh, not something that is well-received And so some of them get super angry. Angry enough, Tony, to uh, form a mob and to reach out with their bare hands and try to kill a man. So that, Mr. Commander, is what you're looking for, the answer. This is what he's done. He's guilty of being a Christian. Let's get to the punch in the mouth. Please don't picture a little slap. This is a... excuse me, bailiff kind of guy. I mean, he's a strong dude. And when he's commanded in front of all of the men to smack the guy in the mouth, he's going to give it to him good. Enough to bloody him up. Break a nose. Put a tooth through a lip. Easy. So, look at the way it starts off. Who's in charge of the meeting? Excuse me, I got a frog. So, who's in charge of the meeting? Well, you would think that the Romans would be emceeing, or maybe the Jewish council. They're not. Who speaks first? It's Paul. Why? Because he's done nothing wrong, so, so there's no crime to, to, that has been done that is driving the proceedings. And so Paul kind of sees it as not that he's been called before them, but that they have been called to appear before Paul by the Holy Spirit. And so he looks at them with a look that really says a thousand words. And so he says, brothers, my fellow Hebrews, I have always tried to serve God with with a good conscience. Now, he means this. Not that he's lived a perfect moral life. He's saying, ever since I was a boy, even through my persecuting Christian days, I always had a sensitive conscience to try to do the right thing before God. And so, you know, when when I got more information, I changed my life. Um, But serving God with a good conscience has always been important to me. That's That's all he means. They didn't take it very well, especially Ananias, who is in no relation to any Ananias you know in the Bible. It's a popular name. Ananias is about six or seven high priests out from Caiaphas uh, in the day of Jesus. So he's infuriated there in verse 2, a clean conscience before God. Who does this guy think he is? This this Gentile-loving, pork-eating, Sabbath-breaking traitor to Moses and the Jewish faith. Why, we ought to just punch him in the face. And so he orders someone to do that. And this is what sparks a rather controversial uh, reaction on Paul's part. Let's call it a spirited response in verse 3. Paul is heated. Why? 
Well, two good reasons. Number one, he's hurt. He got hurt. He's been mauled. He was mauled the day before. They were trying to kill him by beating him. So he's injured already. And now he's, you know, tasting his own blood in his mouth. And why at somebody who has now broken the law and done something uh, illegal? And so that's the second reason. He says, you know, he knows Jewish law forbids that, uh, it, that somebody who's not convicted uh, be punished like that. He's not even properly charged. So the question is, the controversy, uh, is Paul right or wrong in this heated response? regarding Christian ethics. Well, uh, commentators are split. Some of them come to his defense. Others of them uh, take him to task a little bit. And, and some are in the middle, like I am. And so uh, clearly he's frazzled. And clearly he's done something that he may uh, really feel uh, that he regrets doing. Because when he gets the information, he walks back the insult. And so let's talk about it. Uh, Jesus gives us an example. It's not always as cut and dried as we would like. It's a little complicated, this righteous anger versus man's anger kind of thing. Uh, So for Jesus, when Jesus was in the semicircle and they punched him in the mouth, he protested, didn't he? He protested. He said, and I quote, if I said something wrong, uh, please testify to what it was that was wrong. But if I spoke correctly and spoke the truth, why did you strike me? In other words, he's saying what just happened here is wrong. And that's Paul's point. What just happened here is wrong. You guys are judges appointed to uphold the law and then you break the law in front of everybody by ordering me punched in the face. So what you did was wrong. Now, the next step <laughs> there is to, the, to that rebuke. Uh, he, he says this, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. So this is a little bit more easy to understand as perhaps not Paul's a finest moment uh, and something he does, as I say, walk back when he realizes that he directed that to the high priest. Uh, Whitewashed wall, very much like his master's statement to the same bunch of guys. Only Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. So in other words, well, what happened is Passover time, there'd be a lot of people crowding in And uh, to avoid stepping on the tombs and the gravestones, they would whitewash them and decorate them and make them beautiful so people wouldn't step on them and defile themselves under Jewish law. The problem is, Jesus said, you know, that reminds me of you Pharisees. You look great. The robes are beautiful. You got everything in place except like pretty coffins. Inside, there's nothing but rot. And so the the whitewashed wall would be a wall that's needing repair and it's dirty, but instead of repairing the tottering wall, they just paint it and make it look new, but actually it's not new and ready to go over, which Paul says God is about to knock you over for your hypocrisy, which God does do because he is assassinated 
And uh, the way that this guy goes down is really a terrible death. And he is noted by historians as being one of the most wicked high priests that Israel ever had in office. And so that's what's going on. Now, the thing with, uh, so was it right or wrong? Well, as I said, and I quote, it's a slippery slope for, hu- for sinful humans to try to discern correctly between what's called righteous anger and the human anger that does not produce the righteous life that God desires, to quote James in verse 20 of chapter 1 of James. So my prayer is this. May God give me and us, really, wisdom, discernment, self-control, that in our anger we do not sin, and that case by case, God show us when something needs to be called out, that our attitudes that we not defile uh, that moment and hide ourselves behind the banner of righteous anger when, in fact, it's not honoring God. Now, if Paul did something slightly um, less wise here, um, then what he does now is 10 stars. Definitely 10 star review here in verse four. They tell him, you've got the gall to speak irreverently about the high priest. The high priest was like the Pope. You know, you just wouldn't do that. And so uh, Paul says, whoops. Paul says, I had no idea that, that, that it was the high priest. And what is he meaning by that? He's saying, well, I heard the voice and I knew in my heart, the high priest would never stoop to something like that. He thought, there's no way that came from the high priest. But now that I know that, he's saying... Well, now that I know that, I should have respected the verse that says, do not revile the ruler of your people. So here he is with people who, command, who love the commands, the law of Moses. He owns his sin, if you want to call it that. He owns his misstep. And he quotes the law of Moses over himself and comes under it saying, whoops, I should have obeyed that because that's the word of God. They may remember nothing else except a man who humbled himself, quoted the Bible against his own actions and said, in essence, I am sorry. The commentator is so quick to say, oh man, the power of humbling ourselves It is the most powerful thing and the most difficult to get to a place of humility where you're able to look intently, understand the word of God is speaking against your attitude or your speech, and to say, I am wrong, I'm sorry. Wow. Healing of relationships. And we're going into Thanksgiving, folks. Listen. Let's imitate this. Let's go in low. Jesus said, I am gentle and humble in heart. The word humble means low to the ground. He is God who by by Christ all things were created. Very God of very God says, in my heart, lowly. Let's go in lowly to those gatherings not having to have the last word, not needing to push our agendas and talk about inflammatory issues. Let's go into the gatherings quiet, 
peaceful, in love, serving others, being polite and courteous and gracious and willing, if necessary, to to walk back something that comes up. This is the way um, to open hearts. And commentators love to say that what's coming, the Pharisees are going to open their hearts to Paul. And that the Pharisees so respected this move that they are now (laughs) really prepared by the Holy Spirit, having seen this, uh, to receive Paul's uh, next words. And so let's see what those words are. Moving on from 6 to 10. Then Paul, knowing some of them were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, totally different people, (laughs) different values, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Now, we didn't know that of Paul's father. Wow. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Paul was saying, praise God. <laughs> Verse 8, God, you know, the heat's off of him now. Just for a second. Wouldn't that be nice? Just say, can you guys just take the heat off of me? That wasn't really the point. Verse 8, as we'll see. Now, Luke edits this with a parenthesis that says, by the way, the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, that there are neither angels nor spirits. In fact, they don't even believe there's a heaven or life after death, these guys. Let's talk about this. So we go from the slap to the strategy here. Paul is, uh, many say, you know, he has a stroke of genius here. Uh, By the Holy Spirit, he's a drowning man. He's grasping for anything to relate, to build a bridge. How can he get some sympathizers or some open ears to this message? And he knows what to do. He's going to maximize what they have in common. And so, Very interestingly, he calls himself a Pharisee. I am, not I was. I am a Pharisee. It's like being a Marine. Once you're a Marine, always a Marine, right? And so once you're a Pharisee, now, interesting, you could get saved as a Pharisee and remain a Pharisee, right? That their only problem was (laughs) their unbelief and their pride and their legalism. Those are big problems. But doctrinally, They were the Bible teachers, and they had it right, except they were blind. Now, the Sadducees, (laughs) the Sadducees weren't believers in the Bible, the authority of the word. They didn't believe anything, really, except uh, they wanted money and influence and power. So they were the corrupt, and they're called liberal theologians or progressives in that assembly. And so the, the, the Pharisees were conservative theologians, and the Sadducees were just the opposite. And so, <clears throat> so Paul knows this. And so he says, listen, I'm a Pharisee. The word means separated. I'm separated to God for the gospel now. I'm still a Pharisee. And the problem everybody has with me, Mr. Pharisees, is our doctrine of the resurrection, which was a doctrine in the Old Testament. Psalm 16, the doctrine of the Messiah, Rising from the dead. Isaiah 53 says he would be raised from the dead. So he says, with no exaggeration whatsoever, he's spot on saying, it's about the resurrection. Of course, the Messiah 
comes to die for the sins of the world. And everything hinges on this, rising from the dead, defeating death in the grave by dying in our place. So I'm on trial, brother Pharisees, for something we Pharisees believe, the resurrection, the resurrection of Messiah, which has taken place, and the resurrection of every single person in that room, every single person, good or evil, will be bodily resurrected. Every single person ever born of a woman will one day stand before God in their bodies resurrected. Some to everlasting life, Daniel chapter 12 and 2, and some to everlasting contempt and shame, to quote Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, which is Old Testament. So here's what he's saying. The reason I'm in trouble here, fellow Pharisees, is because we Pharisees believe in this cherished thing called going to heaven and life everlasting. And my problem is, not only am I going to heaven because I've experienced a raising of my own life and a future resurrection, I want others to come to heaven as well. And that's my problem. That's what he lays out here. And then, uh, yes, he does know that this is going to cause a little bit of <laughs> a divide, but he's hoping that the Pharisees will, will open their hearts and, and stand up for them and him, and they do. So he tosses the hot potato in there. The uh, One commentator called it the apple of discord. Yes, indeed, boom. And uh, he lets them throw it around a little bit. Now, looking at verses 9 and following, uh, pandemonium again. <laughs> you know, I can just see Tony, the commander, like, are you kidding me? What is wrong with these people? You know, Middle Easterners, man, it's in the DNA. Just drama, you know? And so I'm just, it's like road rage now in there, uh, only in religious robes. And when people lose their mind in this kind of anger, uh, this is when people get killed. And this is what they're afraid is going to happen now. So the Pharisees say, hey, listen up, guys. We, talking to the Sadducees, we think that Paul is okay. Because what if they know the testimony that somebody appeared to him like an angel or he called it the Lord? He says, they say, what if? Because we believe that's possible because there are angels and spirits. So what if what he's saying is true? And so they're tugging on one arm saying, and look at your text. They're tugging on one arm and they're saying, he's one of us. And the Sadducees grab the other arm and say, oh, no, you don't. He's a heretic. We're going to try him. And they're pulling him toward them. And the commander says, there's so much heat and uh, passion in the room that he was afraid, literally, that Paul could get torn in two. So he calls in the jaws of life, the jaw of life, you know, that machine that comes in to extricate somebody who's stuck, and he comes in to save the day. Moving on from 11 now uh, to 15. Beautiful verse, perhaps the most beautiful words in the Bible, Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage, man. Listen, 
As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so must you testify in Rome. Going to be okay. I've worked things out. It's a done deal. You're going to Rome. Do work for me. He goes on to say, now it goes on to say the next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with a silly little oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 of these zealots, they were called dagger men because they used to have hide their daggers in their cloak and they'd walk by and they would slit the throats of the Roman soldiers or for their uh, would-be uh, person who they wanted to assassinate, these dagger men. They were involved, 40 of them, in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders, the religious guys, and they say to the so-called pastors, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have murdered this innocent guy. Now, then you and the Sanhedrin, the, the, the eldership, petition the commander to bring Paul before you on the, um, on the pretext, pretending that you want more accurate info about his case. We're ready to kill him before he gets here. Let's talk about this now. I got to say and comment, you know, you can preach a whole verse, uh, a whole sermon on the one verse, verse 11 there, uh, that the Lord didn't appear in a vision. It wasn't in a dream. The Lord Jesus Christ made a personal visit to the room and stood in Paul's airspace, his personal airspace. The Lord. Yeah. That experience is going to carry him to the end of the book. From the end of the... He, he, he doesn't get freed to the end of the book. Seven more chapters. Through ups and downs and inside outs and all kinds of troubles. But that is going to be his encouragement, his comfort, his motivation to keep going on because he's seen the Lord again. But this time, up close and personal. I love the scripture, Psalm 34, 18. The Lord's near to the brokenhearted. He comes close to save those crushed in spirit. Paul's brokenhearted. He, wanted, he had some opportunity to preach the gospel. It did not go well. He's probably thinking, why do I have to go and bring up the Gentile thing? It blew everything up. They were listening. They were right there. Why did I lose my temper? Call the guy out like that. I'm just going to die here. Nobody knows the troubles. Uh, you know, singing that song. And the Lord comes near. You know, it's one thing to have a promise of God, but the presence of God. And your feelings are not, do not ever trust your feelings. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. Your feelings never know. <laughs> They always tell you he's a million miles away, like the psalmist. Where are you? You're abandoning me. And the Lord's actually as close as he was to Paul. Only in the church, he's even closer, isn't he? Because he wed our spirit to his spirit, that we are one with him. It doesn't always feel that way, uh, but he is. So he falls asleep with a smile, right? And he wakes up. 
unbeknownst to him, the 40 would be assassins who are bent on murdering him. That's how it goes. God gives you a promise and a hope. You fall asleep like, oh, thank you, Jesus. So you wake up, and there are 40 killers ready to strike. That's how it goes sometimes. So, you know, but he's got a promise. So let's talk about the plot of the Jews. So crazy. Oh, my word. Very serious. So an Old Testament oath of this kind would sound something like this. May God strike me dead. May his curse fall on my head and the heads of my family. If I break this vow, the vow is this, I will not eat until he's dead. Now, I wrote down here, that's the silliest thing ever, because these guys are going to be really super hungry, uh, super fast. And I hope they have some weight to lose. Uh, because if you make, <laughs> and I have your great diet plan, try this. Make a promise not to eat until God fails to keep one of his promises. Because you will hit your target weight and probably a lot more, <laughs> you know. The, the plan, that, so the, the brood of vipers, as Jesus called them, you know, decide to cooperate and they're going to work together and do this good deed to get rid of this guy. And then after they say, we'll jump him. Once he gets into those narrow cobblestone streets where he's a dead man walking. And they say, may the Lord bless you, my son. Oh, gag me. So <laughs> Satan puts a plan into motion and the Lord moves to counter plan. A counter motion to hinder it. I love this. Two paragraphs, 16 through 22. But when the son of Paul's sister, what? Tantalizing information. Who knew he had a sister? We do now. And a son, a nephew, a boy, probably 11 or 12 at the time. You'll see why. Paul's, the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot. <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> he went into the barracks and told Paul, oh, Paul can have visitors. Yes, he's a Roman citizen. And for the next five years, all through the book, he has visitors. He has visitors every single time, except here. There are no Christians visiting him. Nobody who got him into this whole predicament. No, they're not out visiting him. There's no record of it. Where the, where's the team? So that's one of the reasons the Lord said, I'll go. I'll show up. There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Then Paul called the centurions and said, take this young man. He's got some information to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to Tony. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent, me, uh, sent for me and asked me to bring you this young man because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand. Now, that's how you know he's 10, 11, 12. He's no, he's no older than that. And the word can mean boy. Uh, and drew him aside, a quiet place, and said, what is it you want to tell me? And he tells him every little detail. How in the world, the right, at the right place, at the right time, he heard them talking. Somehow. Little did they know, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the council tomorrow. They're pretending like they want some more information. Don't believe him for a second. There's 40 waiting in ambush to kill him. They've taken an oath. They're not going to eat or drink until they murdered him. Uh, they're ready now. They're waiting for your consent. 
So the commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, uh, don't tell anyone you have reported this to me. Uh, because why? Uh, because he could end up dead, right? And uh, also, it would sabotage the rescue effort of his uncle. So let's talk about this silly plan that was destined to fail. Uh, no weapon formed against you will prevail, says Isaiah 54 and verse 17. Just know that if God has a work for you to do, which he pretty much all of you qualify for that, uh, you are indestructible, as I've often said, until God has completed that task in your life. And so um, it's a beautiful display here. of a, it's, This is a miracle. Come on. Paul's sister, who seems to be pro-gospel because the boy is rescuing. We don't know if she knows about this or not. It would seem he might have told his mom who sent him in to tell Paul. It's hard to say. But here we see the providence of God. It's a miracle. He, he, he could put people together like that. But it's not hard for God to do these kinds of miracles of providence. Providence means the way God orchestrates things and our footsteps in ways that we don't even know in everyday life. Like when you miss a flight or a chance meeting or a delay in traffic and then afterwards something happens and you put it together, you're like, that was the Lord, you know, how he does that. It's just amazing how this little boy could have been in earshot to hear all those details like that. I mean, what was happening around there? First of all, some commentators suggest he might be in rabbinic school like Paul was his uncle. Uh, there, they, they had housing there, and they, they would study and raise up the young boys there from around that age. So maybe that's why he's in that general vicinity and why there's kind of a trusted proximity that he's right there and nobody cares he's just one of the little rabbi kids you know who knows but God is just an expert at lining people up like this miraculously what are the odds you know so many times I think of uh, and if I gave you a microphone we'd be here all day talking about all those different ways, you know. I took this flight that I was supposed to catch, but actually I missed one and got bumped to another, and then I sat next to a young lady, and now she's my wife. You know, it's just amazing how God does that. Um, I had this thought 20 years ago. Maybe God wants to plant a church in Sebastopol, and the only person who knew about it was me and Barb. That's it. And I said, honey, I'm going to go Sunday after church, and I'm going to tell Pastor Jay about the idea and see how he receives that. And so I'm in line on a Sunday. I've told this story before. I, I, I'm waiting. There's two people talking to him after the service. And there's a guy getting in my airspace, you know, <clears throat> and he's like, hey, Ross, how do you know I've got speaking to you? And I God speak it to you. Hey, how do you know if and I'm trying to get my thoughts straight to tell Jay about planning a church maybe in Sebastopol? And he says, he goes, uh, how do you know when, like, let's say God wants you to plant a church? How would you know? And I said to him exactly this, how would I know? 
are you talking to me about planning a church or you? And he goes, I don't know. I'm just talking about just these ideas in my head. You know, maybe plant a church, you know. I was driving through Sebastopol, <clears throat> and I was thinking, oh, what a great building. That would make a great church. And I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? And he's like, I just have these ideas, and I'm bouncing them off of you. And I go, I know, I know. And I'm like, run along now, you know. I just got, you know. So I knew right there, it was just, just that's too over the top. That's crazy. How did, how did that even happen, you know? And uh, so I went home and told Barb, and what a nice confirmation. But along the line, I could tell you, I could stand here for the next half an hour with all those stories, and so could you, because that's what God does. That's what he does. And so he aligned it. Somehow the kid is kicking a ball around. Or somebody's just talking so loud and proud, they don't even care. And little do they know that the little kid is there listening to every word. You know, I love the scripture that says, God sets the stars in place. He lines up the constellations. He calls for the stars, and they go to the place he's assigned. If the sun, moon, and, sun, moon, and stars take orders from him for their coming and going, how much easier him to direct our lives. And so let's finish up. I think what we'll do is just go little by little, three paragraphs in a row, and I'll make some comments along the way. Let's do that. Verses 23 and 25. Then he called two of his centurions, now Tony, the Roman, uh, centurion, the Roman commander, a centurion's in charge over 100 guys, the commander's over the whole thing. <clears throat> the centurion, centurions, and gets, he says, get ready a detachment of, get this, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and what is it, 200 spearmen to go 60 miles north to the next Roman outpost, Caesarea, at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Uh, he is about six or seven governors past Pontius Pilate. He wrote a letter as follows. Well, let's pause there just for a second, and then we'll go on. You know, when Paul was with Jesus in the barracks, and Jesus said, look, you're safe. I'm going to take care of you. Take comfort, man. You know, he, sometimes God likes to... I don't know, can I put it this way, flex his muscles for his little kids and say, look what I can do. So Paul's in the middle. He's in the middle. He's got 200 soldiers around him. Then around them, there's 70 horsemen. And around them, 200 spearsmen. And they're moving Paul. And Paul's got a smile on his face going, Lord, come on, you didn't have to do that. You know, one man who's got a friend in high places, he's doing the father's business, and the Lord is like, look, and I make a promise to you. And a lot of the commentators like to say, what you see visibly there is spiritually in the invisible realms around those who fear the Lord. That we may not sense that we're under that kind of protection that protective order is for everyone. Those who fear the Lord, the, the angel of the Lord encamps about them. Just a really safe place to be. 
the promises of God. And then moving forward, here's the letter he sent Claudius. So Tony's real name turns out to be Claudius. Claudius Alicius or Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were able to kill, they, they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he's a Roman citizen. Now, let's go back, Tony Claudius. Let's go back and tell the story the way it really happened. I arrested some guy. I didn't know he was a Roman citizen. And so I stripped him and had him tied to a pole, a Roman citizen, even before I knew what the charges were. He wasn't officially charged. Turns out that I found out after I was going to flog him that he was indeed. And so then I reversed course. No, somehow it comes out this way. <laughs> uh, uh, they were about to kill him, but I came and rescued him because I learned that he is a Roman citizen. Some things never change. People are people 2,000 years ago. 28, I wanted to know why they were accusing him. Now, that's true. He's been asking that for three chapters. So I brought him to their council. I found the accusation and some silly thing about their religion, but there's no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. Then why would even, why would, why don't just let him go then? Verse 30, because he, they, he doesn't get to be let go. Why? Because God's got a purpose for him to be incarcerated. Oh, he's going to do so much good. We'll wait and see. When I was informed of a plot, to be carried out against the man. I sent him to you at once. I ordered also his accusers to uh, present to you their case against him. In other words, this is, I'm passing this on to you. Tag, you're it. This is your problem. So last paragraph and we're done. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night. So they left at nine and brought him as far as Antipatris, which is 20 miles north. Now, the next day, they let the cavalry uh, go on with him while they returned to the barracks. So, so 200 guys got to go back to the barracks because the first 20 miles were really the problem. And there's a lot of overgrowth. And uh, you get 20 miles up, and now it's more open space. And they just felt like it was safe and didn't need... Uh, have all those guys on overtime pay. That was a joke. Verse 34, uh, and they hand the letter over and Paul. Uh, the governor read the letter, saw all of the soldiers, and he asked what province he was from. Why? Because he doesn't want to inherit this problem. So he's hoping that Paul is from a jurisdiction that he can just push this onto somebody else. So when he finds out he's from southeastern Turkey, he says, well, I guess I will be hearing your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Now, I would underline that if you had a Bible and were an underlining kind of person. Under guard in Herod's palace. So here's our takeaway. Paul is going to be incarcerated now to the end of the book for five years, two years in Caesarea, 
a long time journey to get to, to Rome, a shipwreck on Malta where half that island gets saved. So, many, so much good happens in Caesarea, but then he's also in Rome under house arrest, renting his own house, conducting meetings for two more years, incarcerated. Here's my takeaway. While the church is praying for this unpleasant experience to resolve, the Lord is saying, hold on, everybody. This incarceration is for my glory. And he, arguably, you can say, did more for Christianity in his five years of incarceration than he did in all of his free years. Why? Well, as I've said before, he has time to write his friends, and he writes Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon during his prison time. Also, and the reason I said underline the, the uh, kept under guard in Herod's palace is because he tells the Philippians, everyone in Herod's palace guard have heard the gospel from me. And he's chained to them, and they're chained to him. And, and word is getting out. And he's a Roman citizen, so he's given a lot of freeway for free you know, freedom, thank you. And, and yeah, so he uses that. And God is blessing him in there. And he's going to give speeches and defenses to all kinds of gatherings and all of this. And so at the end of Philippians, he says, and all who are in Caesar's household, the brothers, those who got saved in Caesar's household, send you greetings. So what, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is this. God sometimes chains us to very unpleasant circumstances which we cannot extricate ourselves from. Sorry. You can pray all you want, and it's always good to pray for the grace and pray for release. Why not? But while you're incarcerated at the job that you want out of, at the extended family you wish was different, or the illness or the trial that you're chained to, Leave room for this possibility that God is working something that is unpleasant to him and to you, but accomplishes something beautiful like the saving of souls, the writing of scripture, bringing the gospel to Nero. This is beautiful things. I was thinking of an incarceration of mine, and there's so many things that I was kind of trapped in that turned out to be God's will because something beautiful came of it. And I was thinking today of, uh, and I told the first services, two stories, uh, one in one service and one in the other. But the story that comes to mind for you is uh, when I was going through my chemotherapy 20 years ago, and I've never had a struggle since then, I was uh, in UCSF, just getting the, the therapy, and I kept the providence of God. I kept being in a room, the same room, and everybody's scheduled different. And, but I'd end up next to the bed of this same guy on whatever day I went, at whatever time I went. There he is, and we'd be joking about it. How is this possible? 
How, because they're random. It's not always at the same time on the same day. So it's like, man, well, I didn't need any prompt there. I knew what I was supposed to do. So I'm like, have you heard the gospel? Oh, yeah, my daughter's been trying to get me to be saved forever. And I said, well, don't you think it's about time? Maybe here you are getting chemotherapy, don't you think? And he goes, you know, I've been thinking about it lately. And, you know, long story short, after a couple times, he said, yes. I want that peace you're talking about. Can you lead me in the prayer? He really wanted to give his life to the Lord. And we prayed, and it was so beautiful, and it was so real. I managed to get him a Bible, and, uh, and it's moving. <laughs> I'm going to try to get through the end here. And so he was not doing well. And I saw them, uh, last time I saw him, uh, they wheeled him right by me. And he looked at me. <laughs> it gets me every time he mouthed the word, thank you. And off he went. And he passed away uh, the next couple of days. I asked a doctor about him, and I got it out of him. And then he had passed away. But the last thing I saw was him uh, being wheeled out with uh, that thankful expression, and he wheeled into the presence of God safe and secure. Why? Why? In part, because I was chained <laughs> to a trial that I'd rather have been freed from, that I prayed every day that I would be extricated from, and God was like, look, dude, part of why this is happening is for people like him. Eternal life. So instead of looking at the chains as this is the worst thing that's ever happened, and yes, it's as unpleasant and horrible as it probably is. But if God's allowed it in your life, Christian, I promise you there's something beautiful waiting for you to discover as you have discovered in the past. So bring in that faith today and uh, look instead of down. Look up and around for your opportunity to be a blessing to the Lord. The takeaway for you today is this, that the Lord is near you. He's come near to you. He sees you, the one who sees the sparrow fall to the ground. He knows when the souls of those who are bought by his own blood are struggling. He's near you. He loves you. He knows about it. He's with you, and you are protected way more than you ever realize. Way more than 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. That's nothing compared to what he's got guarding you. Because when we see angels in the Bible, people bow down and worship. Military men in the Bible, military men who see angels, they quake as dead men in fear. One of those angels guards over you. Well, he, he says that in the book of Hebrews, that they're assigned to minister over us, they protect us, they watch over us. You got them. They're around you. Take heart. 
And thirdly, lastly, the thing that's really stressing you out, he's allowed it. And he, something, it's not your enemy. It could be your friend. So let's let it do its work, cooperate with it, kind of roll with it, so that it can get accomplished and can pass. The quicker we get to the dentist in the next bed there, by the way, it was a retired dentist, the better. And maybe the quicker we get to leave. Let's pray, God. Thank you for these insights. They're very valuable to us. Help us now to let them stick so we can apply them. And be blessed. Be a blessing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.